TheWellnessCouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. This is That Paleo Show with your hosts, Stephanie Wozolik, Dr. Yana James, and Dr. Brett Hill. Welcome to That Paleo Show, making the paleo lifestyle easy and accessible for everyone. I'm Stephanie Wozlick. I'm Dr. Yana James. And I'm Dr. Brett Hill. You guys might remember that back in May, we went to the Mind Forum in Sydney, where we met Nora Gagaunas. Another one of the perks of that was that we got to meet all sorts of other holistic practitioners while we were there, including our fascinating guest today, Dr. Mark Donahoe. Mark graduated from the the Faculty of Medicine at Sydney University in 1980 and has worked in private practice since 1983. He's specialized in environmental and nutritional medicine for an impressive 20 years. (laughs) He was awarded fellowship at the Australasian College of Nutritional and Environmental Medicine. And in 1994, he was elected founding president of the Australian Comprehensive Medicine Association, which has since become the Australian Integrative Medicine Association. Merck was medical director of the Environmental Medicine Center from 1989 to 1993, a multidisciplinary hospital, environmental unit, and outpatient department, which collaborated with the University of Newcastle to perform clinical research, leading to a number of publications on chronic fatigue syndrome and chemical injury in the medical literature. For the past five years, Mark has been president of the Natural Healthcare Alliance, which is a national body representing the natural healthcare and complementary medicine profession. Obviously, Mark has played an integral part in holistic health in Australia, and we love what he had to say at the Mind Forum. So it's our pleasure to have our first and hopefully first of hopefully many GPs on the show. So welcome, Dr. Mark Donahoe. It's a pleasure to be here. (laughs) Thanks, Mark. So to get started at the Mind Forum, I absolutely loved how you described evolutionary medicine. Could you maybe describe that for our listeners? Sure. The... um... The, I, I did start that uh, that presentation with what the XXX is wrong with medicine. And so, that, was, that was my favourite slide of the whole Yes, week. yes, <laughs> I, I did notice the tweet of that favourite slide. <laughs> there's, there's something deeply wrong with medicine and it, it arises out of this problem that we have evolution as the predominant model of biology on this planet. And I think pretty well everyone who has the brain accepts that evolution has a part to play in you know, in healthcare, it's just that we don't practice that way. Survival of the fittest has become survival of the richest. And what's even more of a problem is that we're heading off with novel molecules that the world has never seen before and patenting them and calling them drugs and then pretending that they are well designed for human beings. And evolution has carved out a niche for humans, dogs, pigs, plants, everything, by keeping a very, very tight schedule of molecules of life. I like to call them molecules of life as opposed to patentable molecules. But these are the molecules in nature that we grew up with. And there is a tradition of healthcare, and we are the survivors of that. So mothers raising babies and traditional herbs and the tradition of healthcare is something that we co-evolved in nature with. Now, if you believe medicine now, it's almost like us against nature. Every microbe is evil until proven otherwise. Every food that's natural is no different from that grown with pesticides and monocultures are exactly the same as other cultures. And the problem with analytical science is it takes complex systems, whether that's environments or whether that's human beings or animals, it takes them and simplifies them to a workable model 
but we're not simple. We are complex, involved in our own world. We have an external environment to live in. We have an internal environment that is incredibly complex. And in medicine, for many thousands of years, we've paid no attention to this whatsoever. So the idea of evolutionary medicine is there are reasons that things happen in biology, in humans and in health that are our adaptation to our environment, not disease. Medicine sees everything abnormal as a disease and tries to treat it with a drug. And a lot of what happens, the temperatures that kids run, the birth through the messy you know, birth canal, those things that look so messy and badly designed are in fact incredibly important for the recovery of health. And paying attention to what does nature provide us that allows us to survive and, over, and recover over time is something that medicine has just been awful at for a hundred years. We're too smart for our own good and we keep overriding natural responses to challenges and pretend that only by the grace of medicine do we live. So evolutionary medicine is a return back to say, really, are we that uh, weak that we have to dominate every microbe? Can we not have healthy food, healthy people, go back to the basics of how we evolved way before grains, way before milk, way before all of those things, go back to the basics of our evolutionary biology and rediscover what creates health and what creates disease and give disease back to the doctors, but make health the job of some other group, people who know what it looks like. Yeah, I love that, Mark. And that was what I really loved about your evolutionary medicine talk. And I think one of the things I got from it was, you know, when you look at things from an evolutionary perspective, you know, we've got a system that's really focused around keeping people alive, but not necessarily keeping people healthy. Yes. Um, and from an evolutionary perspective, that doesn't really make sense. Is that fair to say? That is. That's very fair to say. I mean, the job of medicine is to pretend prevent catastrophic disease taking lives. I mean, it's basically a really good set of tricks that are exceptionally good. If you know we fall off a cliff, if a car comes colliding into us, medicine has got some fantastic techniques for preventing death and maintaining aliveness. But doctors often mistake lack of disease for health, and health is anything but that. Health is a vigorous state in which there is resilience of the host organism. Disease doesn't strike randomly. It just strikes the weak, and it strikes the poor, and it strikes the hungry. It strikes people who we know about, but we go about it as if the disease is the problem rather than the strength and health of the host. And we've lost sight of health. In 100 years, health has gone from something to be aspired to to something that accidentally occurs when the doctor's finished with their treatment. Yeah, well that's really interesting, especially when you look at the statistics of how many um, young people and people especially in the Western world now that are getting sick because you don't necessarily associate them with um, you know, poverty or ill health, but it's, oh. it's those people. So it must be something else that's weakening them. You're right, you're right. I mean, the, the original problem solved by medicine is that there was poverty and health problems and sanitation and there were there was a value to making sure that when we aggregated in cities and we pooped into rivers and then drank from those rivers <laughs> that we didn't do that too much. <laughs> and putting in sanitation and putting in the basics of food handling, that's a lot of what was never part of medicine, but it medicine has benefited from. But medicine I was I was trained in this, you know, medicine is identify disease appropriately treat the disease, eliminate that disease and attempt to return the person to a non-disease state. In our medical education, we had zero lectures on what health was. 
health was this kind of vague notion that if you've run out of diseases, you are must be healthy because what else is there? And there is a vast gap between a healthy, healthy person and a person who is not diseased, but tired, weak, aching all over, non-functioning, fatigued. A large part of my practice is this conundrum of chronic fatigue syndrome and chronic adverse reactions to chemicals in the environment and adverse reactions to drugs. And we don't, in medicine, we just don't have a place for those things. They're not a disease, but they're not health. And so perpetually, people would say chronic fatigue syndrome get assigned to the healthy category, even though they may not be able to move from their own home. Mm, because yeah. they don't fall into a disease state, they are not seen as a unwell person. And so we have to reopen that whole discussion of are we trading a medical contract? You know, we have a contract with our doctors, you treat us for health. If their concept of health is you don't have disease, then we've, we've basically signed our own little warrant as far as it goes with health care. Uh, I, I guess don't, we have a healthcare system. I actually think we have a terrific disease care system yeah. that metastasized into health because we all thought, well, if you can save lives, you must be the people who can tell us how to stay healthy. And our record for that is abysmal as doctors. Yeah. I, it's also, I suppose, that tricky, tricky aspect of um, being symptomatic versus being diseased because you can certainly be developing a disease but have no symptoms of it. And in that case medicine doesn't really have an answer for you until you're symptomatic as well is that I, that is true in fact i see this all the time that you see people whose health is deteriorating and doctors are waiting for the point of disease i've got to tell you one yeah. small story my mother-in-law at the at the very beginnings of me getting into this back in 1983 84 my mother-in-law had leukopenia which was a very low white cell count no cause was found and I sent it to specialists in Sydney to a very famous hospital that spends its time on TV. And they did test after test. And after months and months and months, I got a letter back from the immunologist that said, there is no cause for this. We should wait for her to get a proper disease and open parentheses, <gasps> leukemia, lymphoma, etc., close parentheses, and then treat according to good medical principles. Oh, wow. no. And she uh, came back home with this letter and... I was just starting this, and then I thought, well, hang on, she's working in her husband's petrol station, mm. and she was pumping petrol. Mm. And we took a punt and said, well, that can't be good for you. Get out of there. Six months later, her white cell count was good, and 30 years later, she's in good health. Wow. Amazing. But it was not on a path of good health if we did the medical model of, hey, let's see the disease develop, because she definitely was on that path to one of those types of potentially fatal illnesses. So that's the problem that I see with medicine, that we love the hard diagnosis. But if you wait for the hard diagnosis, you've missed the 90% opportunity of prevention. Yeah. And we need a new model which says, here's what health looks like. Here's what we aspire to. And until we achieve that, we haven't done our job. Then there's greys, the 50 shades of grey from there to disease. And in that area i think there's an opportunity at the one end of health you maintain it with food a happy environment love care you you maintain it with the wisdom of mothers when it moves away from that there's an area for traditional medicine which is not overdoing the job to say well if it's simple infections here's herbs and here's simple ways of getting back to health and then medicine's job should be at the end of the line when all of those other techniques have failed there will still be people who fall through the cracks whose lives have to be saved. And I think mm -hmm. the medicine should restrict itself a bit to that area. 
Yeah, and that's such a familiar concept for us, Mark, as chiropractors. Like a lot of the original chiropractors used to use the term dis-hyphenese, you know, to talk about that, you know, when it's not yet at a stage of being diagnosed as a disease, but obviously it's still not right, it's still not functioning well. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's where we need to get it looking at. And, you know, one of the interesting things I find is that that's kind of what medicine used to be about. Like if you go back, you know, a thousand years or, you know, a, a longer time ago, then that was kind of what doctors were doing was trying to find out, well, what does cause a disease and what was the, the underlying problem and looking at diet and all those things. So where do you think it's, modern medicine has gone wrong? Like why has it gone uh, away from that? Hey, uh, hey, you're a chiropractor? I'm not allowed to talk to chiropractors. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. hey, I don't think that is actually the right reading of history. The history of medicine, I've had to do this a few times in presentations. Back in Mesopotamia, the beginnings of civilization, there's been a perpetual transition. This, this wave of complementary and alternative medicine now is not new. Back in those days... Healthcare was the witches, the midwives, the priests, and there was forever a group of males who would go and take the secret knowledge of medicine, form an elite, treat the kings, queens, emperors, or whoever, separate themselves from the from the others, and become isolated and and basically serve royalty. And that was fortunate because generally they killed the royalty, and that was the natural way. That <laughs> whole whole uh, you know, Mesopotamia and other places fell that the royalty ended up being badly treated by people who knew nothing. But the rise of male-dominated orthodoxy in healthcare saying, we know better, we are the, you know, the holders of the truth, burn the witches, burn the midwives, get, you know, put the priests back in the church, then at the failure each time of that orthodoxy to meet the needs of the people, the witches, the midwives, the priests the knowledge, the traditional knowledge grew again. And it's a wave that's happened many times. It did happen through Hippocratic eras because in Hippocrates' time, this concept of wellness was deeply ingrained. Mm. And we take a Hippocratic oath with most doctors being entirely unaware that Hippocrates was far closer, closer to naturopathy than it was to medicine. Yeah, and I guess that's we probably have Sorry? I said that's probably the, the era I was thinking of, I guess. Yeah, well, yeah. It, was, it was the romantic view, but, you know, bluntly, as I said, the Romans <laughs> won. The Romans got a head start and said, tumor, dolor, calor, rubor, if it's not red, swollen, tender or sore, go home, pay me on the way out and see me tomorrow. And that's basically what we've inherited in a Western world, that the Roman model of waiting until there's something you can touch, hold, feel, stab and cut out is a highly paid way because at that point people are desperate and will give everything and the way of looking after your health from you know as the basis of life was never popular because it requires effort when you don't feel unwell yeah. and it requires a system in society which values wisdom of elders that carries over things like well here's how diets changed here is how lifestyle has changed and we don't have much time for that we're so busy with our ipads our fast foods our supermarkets that it's easy for a generation to become asthmatic obese and unwell and they're not even 12 years old yet mm -hmm. yeah. so that that is the tragedy of our age that we're so clever about our diseases and so stupid about the next reign of ill health we've traded acute disease for chronic disease. We've traded, you know, um, starvation for obesity. Mm. It isn't actually a good trade. What we need is some holistic, some clever concepts which tie it together. And that's my view that evolutionary medicine is in fact the next step in medicine, that when we pay attention to the 
outer environment, where we live, the trees, the atmosphere, the quality of the outside world, the home, and then we pay attention to the inside environment, the gastrointestinal bugs, the things that live on our skin and our nose. When we get clever enough to incorporate all of those, we'll be closer to some form of medicine that has a hope of being a healthcare system. Oh, I just love that, Mark. We're, we're always looking for practitioners like that. Um, so in a clinical sense, how do you apply this concept with, with the people who come in to see you? Well, this is, it's very difficult. I, I have to tell you, I'm obligated to be a GP. I mean, and my <laughs> medical registration depends on me doing general practice and doing general practice well. And so when you say it's good to hear this, the trouble is I can say these things, but I still have to practice according to the common practice of my peers. And to step outside that boundary as a general practitioner is very risky. A lot of my colleagues, I mean, I, I was referred on 13 occasions to the Health Insurance Commission, which became Medicare Australia. And the majority of those were, why are you doing testing on healthy people? Why are you seeing people who don't have diseases? Mm. And why are you spending time with people? So I was fined $7,000 for spending too much time with patients. The time was not enough. But others of my colleagues, one of my dear friends, Andrea Martinovic, has just died in Queensland. He was put through the ringer because he saw fatigued patients, he saw people who were chronically unwell, spent time, effort, was magical in the work that he could do. And he was relentlessly persecuted, sent broke and driven, you know, in the end his diabetes got him, but the that he had been through what is what ruined his life. And that that's a whole group of doctors who said, look, we don't think this is the right form of medicine. And we're promptly struck back and told, you know, get back in your spot. You're a doctor. We don't do health here. And that's the strange thing, isn't it, of Medicare? Medicare prevents any doctors dabbling in prevention, except if you're doing pap smears, if you're doing particular procedures which have been negotiated. We are obliged to not bill Medicare for anything that could be considered prevention. Which yep. isn't really prevention, obviously. Yeah, right. I know. It's a, it, that is true. And so I, I, I regard medicine as having to grow up a bit. I foresee a time where education, and this is my dream and something that I and a few colleagues are pursuing, that education of a healthcare practitioner will be not this elite, you know, 99.5% to get into medicine and then you rule the roost, but that it will be a large group of people passionate about health, care, healing, evolutionary biology, medicine, all those together, who get three years together to learn what health and life and tradition and science are all about, who are speaking the same language, who then stream out to do their chiropractic, to do their osteopathy, to do naturopathy, general practice, pathology. And if they're talking a common language, you get around this war that has happened. There was a National Institute of Complementary Medicine set up at the University of Western uh, Sydney, University of Western Sydney. They $5 million went in and HMRC funded it. The medical school that was being set up there would not be on the same campus because they thought their name might be harmed by this concept yeah. Yeah. of having complementary medicine in the same premises. They moved their medical school so there was no proximity. It was like they were scared that some bug would come and catch their students. I'm at Sydney University right now. The students are asking for complementary medicine. The resistance is high. They have to get a few hundred students to band together 
to ask for this to become part of the curriculum, and that's what they're doing right now. So the youngsters are appreciating this. Yeah. Yeah. We're not. Yeah. So, <clears throat> Monk, what what's your suggestion of, uh, you know, how do we, the people, change the way the system's working? Does it have to be that groundswell education from a, a lower level, things like you're doing and that we're doing and, and talking to the public so that they request a better system? Ha. Huh. Uh, it's already <laughs> happening. It's already happening. Yeah. And here's the, the basic rule, and I know I'll get the registration threats. You will never change <laughs> You will never change specialists. You can't work from the top down with the academics, the specialists, the randomised controlled trials. They live in a world of their own. The reason they live in that world is they don't have to care for people in primary care. Mm, So as long as you do not have to face the same person coming back saying, I'm still not well, I'm still not well, I'm still not well, a specialist is able to say, you don't have heart disease, go away and don't bother me again. A researcher only has to research people. They never even meet the people who are going into their trials. That's so fascinating. That's, and, Mark, do you think that's a problem with our current system where, you know, people no longer have their, their own GP, you know, whether you just go from one GP to the next in, in, in big I multidisciplinary centres? I do. And if there was a wisdom to medicine, you know, the cynical view is the wisdom of medicine, the reason they focused on health is they didn't have anything else to do because there was no science to medicine a century ago. (laughs) That I don't think is true. The wisdom of those doctors was they learned, having been through medicine, what was required to keep families healthy. They knew the mum, the dad, the grandmother, the grandchildren, and they could see the lines drawn between them. Perception and, and that... Um, ability to engage in the art of medicine was not lost on them. And older practitioners, people in their 60s, 70s and 80s, were more wise than the youngsters, and they passed that on. Then you get universities where we're terribly clever about the molecular details and the genetics, and we get so smart that we believe that all of that wisdom is just the fluff on the side that we're glad to be rid of. We regard it a little bit sometimes like leeches, that uh, the leeches are back too, which is obviously. <laughs> but we regard it. We regard it as something that was old-fashioned, and haven't. Isn't it good that we've now grown to quote evidence-based medicine? And the problem is that humans are still humans. They're not evidence-based humans. They fall in love. They do silly things. They go out and eat chico rolls after drinking a lot of beer, and they do things that are just not on the evidence-based agenda. So we GPs have to live in a world where people are coming who are messy, who sometimes smoke, who lie about whether they're drinking. All of these things go on. And what will drive change is that people becoming better educated, better knowledge, a bit more knowledgeable about their illness, going to Google, going to complementary practitioners. They start to change GPs because GPs lose business and GPs will not lose business. If they are required to change in order to adapt to the environment, they absolutely do adapt. There's, yeah. there's a story that I give in Mossman that five, ten years ago at the cafes here, the story was always my chiropractor said I should do duck, duck, duck for the asthma, but my doctor says that's crazy, get on the Ventolin, so of course I'm going with the doctor. Now it is the reverse. It's, of course the doctor wants to put my kid on drugs, but he's now being managed by the kinesiologist and the chiropractor and we've worked things out. Yeah, and it's I- that- it's that change when the doctors don't see people coming back where the bookings are getting thin and they're wondering why all these people who were sick are no longer sick and they're starting to call themselves 
integrative, even if that means they met a chiropractor. I mean, I, I, could, now, <laughs> I could even now be integrated just being on this podcast. You yeah. know, that's the mindset of a lot of doctors is if that's what it's required to get business, I'll be integrative. I don't know what it means, but, you know, let's call it that for the time being. Yeah, it's really interesting that you say that, Mark, because Brett and Yana are both chiropractors, but I'm a wellness coach. So I work with people, you know, to get them out of that messy state, right, and help educate them to to better health and lifestyle changes. So I really see a, a place for that in the, in the future, for sure. Mm-hmm. Especially, no, if, yeah, especially absolutely if the point. I mean, this is people drive what we need to do. I have no fear of the return to the witches and the midwives. The witches were just women that brought the wisdom of raising children. The midwives were the specifics of how to bring healthy babies into the world. It was my feeling at the moment is that the mothers and the midwives and the people who've got their fingers on the pulse of healthy babies, keeping babies out of doctors' hands as long as possible, stops them becoming full-time patients, that we have two generations that believe that you had to be a patient to be well. Now we've got a generation of better educated bums saying, hang on, that doesn't fit at all. I want my babies and my children to grow up well. And they turned up at that mind conference in numbers. They're interested yeah. in yeah, what yeah. can I do? Yeah. And you know what's interesting, Mark, is that when, when my wife was young, she had a phrase for anything that was kind of a bit weird and a bit wacky. And it was actually, they would say hip, it was for hippies, gypsies, and chiropractors. <laughs> <laughs> that was actually what they used to say. So, so maybe that's what we need to go back to. Hey, um, it is. And Mark, so uh, obviously we talk a lot on this show about diet and particularly the paleo diet, which is really just about, once again, it's, it's from an evolutionary perspective, just getting back to real food. I mean, what role do you think that has to play in this whole picture? Well, I. If you'd asked me 10 years ago, I would have said, oh, there's, there's food allergies and sensitivities. But since the genetics, I, I don't know, the kind of genome project opened a lot of doors. I, we have these genes called DQ2, DQA genes. These are the ones that make, if you carry these genes, you may get celiac disease. And so we focused on one disease called celiac disease. But only about 10% of people who carry these genes get celiac the rest of them keep on reacting to wheat proteins, these proteins called prolamins. The best known one is a, a gliadin, a part of gluten. And there is something that is clearly happening in this century where the high, high proportion of what we call autoimmunity is being triggered by the quarter of the population who carry these genes suddenly running into their nemesis, which is wheat every day of their lives. Yeah. And the day we started to change from wheat as a crop that you put aside for winter to get you through the starvation period and and, you know there was relative safety in that but the moment it became a supermarket with bread every day and uh, kids the quarter of the population with these genes exposed to that we opened the door for autoimmunity for odd immunology and we are not well adapted to it and I suspect that if we keep going down this path we fairly quickly will see those genes eliminated as the genes were for say lactose um, or the lactase genes when you start to change the diet away from what you evolved to the speed of those changes can be really frightening and in a single generation or two you can have natural selection working terribly against the, the part of the population who evolved well to deal with the natural environment I, I now think that probably the return to a diet which does not involve grains as the predominant form of energy availability certainly gets sugars out mm. and returns us to meats on occasion or 
a protein source that we find that is not dominant every single day of our lives and getting away from milk products, I'm just amazed at how many patients coming off wheat and milk and getting on to a diet where they return to some roots of <laughs> literally the roots of vegetables and the add the uh, foods in season. Just what it does for that yeah. quarter of the population who are really being sickened by being part of our pretense that wheat is as good as every other food. And so, I so have a big thing against wheat, right, and but wheat, rye, and barley, as you can pick up. Yeah, so do we. That's good. 80%, 80%. Of my patients with chronic fatigue syndrome, eighty percent right at the moment run with these genes. Now, twenty-five percent in the whole population. But what it does mean is, these are people who never knew their immunology and their gastrointestinal permeability and their gut uh, and immunology spreading out from there were being affected. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you one other simple story. When we had that environment unit that I, you mentioned in the introduction. We, we doctors would see people and everyone would be told by the naturopath, your liver's under stress, your liver's under stress. And we'd do the tests and we'd say, no, look, the ALT, AST, there's no damage going on. Hmm. We put people in and took them off food for 48 hours when they came into that environment before they had their first blood test. Half of them had liver function test abnormalities in a 48-hour period. <laughs> we went to our textbooks and said, hang on you're meant to go 11 to 13 days before there should be any liver function abnormalities. And we learned, we actually called it the liver stress test, like a cardiac stress test, mm. that if all you've got to do is starve a person a couple of days, their liver was right on the edge. We couldn't pick it up because we wait for the damage of liver disease. That's what our tests show. Yeah. But the naturopaths, chiropractors, others were picking it up easily. They knew what was being affected. And we had no idea because those people hadn't crossed the boundary into disease. And it was a very impressive test for us that those people needed the protection of their gastrointestinal tract and liver in a way that we'd never anticipated. We didn't think that that was the problem. Yeah. So how? So you mentioned before that it's difficult for you to spend this time with um, with people. So how do you manage that then? If you know that it's a dietary recommendation, that yeah. I said. I said doctors find it difficult. I don't find it difficult. My practice has transformed to Ah. about 20 people in a week. I, on average, spend an hour with every single person at every occasion. And Ah. the reason is I find it too complicated. I will also say I'm Irish and so I like the story and I'm interested (laughs) in the full story. And I find it very difficult to say, come on, bring it to the point. What is your problem? because this is com- these are complex health problems. So I have an hour or two. I have a, a booking system. My PA looks after me by telling everybody when I'm running hours late with one person and, you know, catch up on the next. But I've changed my practice around and said Medicare is irrelevant to me. If I'm doing prevention, I don't bill Medi- Medicare. People are perfectly happy to pay for that advice. Mm, yeah. And I actually got asked by the northern side. I'm in an area called Mossman which is a whole story by itself. But I got asked by the North, the Lower North Shore Medical um, uh, Group up here to give a talk to doctors. This was eight years ago. It's eight years ago now. Give a talk to doctors. And I went there and I was talking about complementary and integrative healthcare. And I could see them all tapping their feet. And the first question, yeah, that's all interesting. But how do you bill? You know, <laughs> how, just do you bulk? No, I don't bulk bill. What's the? Yeah, what can you make now <laughs> from this? And the entire mm. set of questions had nothing to do with healthcare. Mm. It had to do with how do we get out of this bulk billing thing? We'd love to do something more, but it's impossible to bulk bill a person and get 
50 60 70 dollars for an hour spent with a person and uh, and mark do you find there's a difference there for the patients in terms of if they're then paying for the whole lot out of their own pocket and, and perhaps taking more responsibility for that do you find that leads to different results with from the it, patient's end as well it definitely does but i decided that i lived in uh, uh gosford which is up on the central coast when i started in 1983 there was a very clear difference. I bulk build people who are on healthcare cards and I, I build privately with a small gap for others. The people who had even small contributions made much more effort. The people who could come in and just stamp their card were there as a pastime. They very rarely, very rarely followed uh, this. And I changed my practice after two years to there always being a contribution. Sometimes up in the Central Coast, it was eggs. I got a chicken <laughs> once. <laughs> there were, but there was a contribution. A person passing something to me meant something about their commitment to what they were going to do for themselves. Awesome. And I, I discovered that so early. Now I build just on the time that I spend with people. And there's less chickens, but that's because <laughs> my PA has to make sure that I get paid and that I pay her. So there, <laughs> there is a billing issue. A lot of people who do the ACNEM, the College of Nutritional and Environmental Medicine course, try and come back and bulk bill and find that it can't work both ways. And that decision comes to a doctor. Do I want to be a healthcare provider or do I want to do GP bulk billing work? Right. And that's a decision many doctors make. Many very ethical doctors say, my commitment is to no-cost healthcare for poor people. And I respect that absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. what I don't think happens is I don't think you create health from that. You may get the diseases fixed, but those same people turn up over and over with what could have been prevented had you paid more attention mm -hmm. on the first occasion. Yeah. Well, Mark, unfortunately, that brings us to the end of the Aww. interview today. I know we, we would love to spend a lot longer with yeah. you, but half an hour goes by really quick. It does. It does. We have absolutely loved this, and it's really nice to hear um, to hear your perspective on all of this from a from actually a non paleo perspective. You have a fairly uh, fairly congruent message. I've been paleoed. I, uh, I've been paleoed without knowing <laughs> it. I, uh -huh. I've <laughs> People have been throwing eggs at you in a good way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we kind of tricked you, didn't we? Aha, <laughs> uh -huh, you're on that paleo show. <laughs> All right. Um, but I just, before we go, I just want to direct people to your website. Now, you said they can find out all, all about your. Um, all of your endeavors on your website, but also your book, uh, Killing Us Softly, which is about how the chemicals in our world affect your health. And that, that website is docmarkey.com. So that's D-O-C-M-A-R-K-Y.com. All right. So everyone, until next week, we'll check us out on Facebook, share your story, and help to grow the Paleo Tribe worldwide. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Hi, Damien Christoph from 100 Not Out here. You know that your health is a direct reflection of your peer group, right? So have you thought about bringing a group of people to our Melbourne Wellness Summit? Your colleagues, your friends or your family? We've got great packages for 10 or more people to the summit, which will be held at Crown in Melbourne on Saturday, August 17. It's going to be 10 hours of powerhouse wellness featuring my Wellness Guys teammates, of course, the Up For A Chat girls, world-class exhibits, and loads more. For group discounts and to secure your spot, go to www.thewellnesssummit.com.